listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is Sarah Lewis, the Outreach Coordinator for Lutheran Services Carolina's New Americans program. We wanted to talk with her about her organization and her experiences helping new Americans in the Southern United States. Your host for today is me, Jackie Burnett. Hi, Sarah Lewis. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're so happy to have you here on Seeking Refuge podcast today. Would you mind starting by just sharing a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the Outreach Coordinator for the New Americans Program at Lutheran Services Carolinas here in Columbia. And I basically do all of the onboarding, training, logistics, and communication for the Circle of Welcome teams or the co-sponsor groups in our community that are matched with refugee families in a relationship and service capacity for about six months. So I do all of that stuff. And then I also onboard our volunteers and just help streamline things between the case managers, the clients, services, people that are helping us out. So Very cool. It's good to have someone who's, who's constantly working with volunteers. And hopefully you get a lot of people who want to volunteer to help. So on that note, could you talk more about specifically Lutheran Service Carolina and, and what that organization does? Yeah, so Lutheran Services Carolina is, is a organization across both states, North and South Carolina. But Lutheran Services Carolina has a lot of programs. They have a lot of assisted living homes and assisted living programs. We have programs assisting folks living with disability, a large foster care program. There's a unaccompanied minors program. There's a program for folks rescued from human trafficking. You know, a lot of different programs. But then there's also the New Americans program, which is also in both North and South Carolina. Uh, we have several offices across both states. And that is the program that specifically deals with refugees, asylees, humanitarian parolees through the federal program. I know exactly what the New Americans program, that it's helping refugees, helping migrants um, and, and other asylees and stuff like that. How specifically do you help these individuals? So our, like I said before, our programs are federal programs. So we have very specific guidelines for who we are able to serve and how we must serve them. Um, there's a ton of, as you can imagine, you know, lots of timelines, guidelines, paperwork, guidance, training. You know, there is so much that goes into helping these folks get settled into life in the United States. And we serve our clients for five years here in the Columbia office. Now, not every New Americans program office has all the programs that go up to five years. Some of the offices are a little smaller, so it depends on what programs we offer here. But here in Columbia, we have a lot of the different programs. And so we do serve our clients for five years from the date of their arrival. However, the intensity and the nature of the service changes throughout time, as you can imagine. So that first initial program, the RMP, the Reception and Placement Program, that's the 90-day program, is very intense, very hands-on. Um, the case manager is just constantly doing almost everything you can imagine to help this family you know, from the moment they arrive at the airport, actually before that, you know, prepping for them, helping them get to their first home. You know, we do all the stuff related to helping them get the appropriate things for their home that, you know, on the government required list, what they need, helping them manage the per capita funding that they're given by the federal program, 
uh, connecting them to all of the state benefits they're eligible for, like Medicaid, food stamps, getting them through the refugee health screening. We use a couple of places here in Columbia that hold the contract for that. You know, that first 90 days, very, very intense. The other programs, as you know, that after the first 90 days, you graduate from RMP and you no longer are there in that program. And then the different, there's different programs that will serve the clients in different ways. Um, one is the matching grant program. They might be enrolled in the RSS program, maybe right after RMP, that's the state programs, or it could be the after matching grant ends. The matching grant program is basically a fast track to self-sufficiency, helps them particularly with jobs and stuff like that. So there's a comprehensive way <laughs> that we help, but like I said, it, it changes over time. I do want to quickly, as part of the answer to your question, just for clarity, like I said before, there's specific statuses we're allowed to serve. So there's some statuses we are not allowed to serve. So like if someone came as a, a student on a student visa, international student, and needed services from us, we would not be allowed to serve that case. We could connect them to, you know, give them some ideas of or referrals of other places they could go to. But um, we can only serve uh, refugees. That's a specific status. Asylees. And then um, humanitarian parolees. And so those are specific statuses. And, and, you know, we adjust to whatever the federal programs, they might say like, okay, now we have made this other group of folks, we've given them humanitarian paroling status, and now this is how we adjust, you know. I know that our listeners are typically familiar with the term refugee and with the term asylee. Can you explain a little bit more about what a humanitarian parolee is? Yes. And just as a disclaimer, I, I always feel like, oh, gosh, I'm not the expert on this. you know. <laughs> but yes, humanitarian parolee is a temporary status. So you might already know that you know refugee is a permanent status, right, that you receive before you enter the U.S. Asylee, to receive asylum, that's something when you're already in the U.S., maybe you came in as humanitarian parolee or a student or something, and you were able to um, go through the asylum process and be granted asylee status, that's also a permanent status. But Humanitarian parolee is temporary, and the U.S. government decides on a variety of factors on who to give that status to. Um, for a, a large example, would be during the Afghan crisis last year, in particular, when you know Kabul fell and things happened so quickly. The United States government created a program called the APA program, specific for Afghans. That's kind of like the reception and placement program that I mentioned earlier. It was kind of that twin, you know, for the 90-day program. But it was just for the Afghans uh, fleeing Afghanistan. The United States government did all of those checks, all of those, you know, the medical screening, the security screening, all of that in either either partly in Kabul or then on military base elsewhere because they had to get people out so quickly. But they elected to give those folks the humanitarian parolee status, which is a temporary status, and get them into the United States and then once they were in the U.S., they were responsible to change that status through appropriate channels with uh, lawyers, you know, immigration lawyers to the appropriate permanent status, whether it is asylee, or, you know, the asylum route or the special immigrant visa. So I should mention, I think I'd forgotten to say that we also serve SID, so special immigrant visas. That's another permanent status. And that's usually folks connected through the U.S. military. So that's an example. But sometimes we get folks from Cuba that were given the humanitarian parolee or folks coming through the Ukraine program that were given humanitarian parolee. So that is whether 
a year or two years, depending on what the U.S. determines, you're allowed in the country legally for that determinate amount of time. And if you want to stay longer, you would have to adjust your status. That kind of leads me to my next question, but I think you already answered it. And that was why you all specifically use the term New Americans. I know on some agency or organization's websites, they'll specifically talk about refugee resettlement. And in that, they'll kind of include asylees. Um, but it seems to be that this is a, a much better all-encompassing term that gets everyone without kind of having a specific label that can sometimes lead to marginalization or uh, some kind of discrimination or you have thoughts around it. But I, I really love the term New Americans. And I'll actually be honest, now, I completed the some training to work with New Americans through y'all's program. And when I watched your presentation that talked specifically and used the terminology New Americans, um, here at the podcast, we also started to try and incorporate that term. It's a little bit harder because we don't just uh, work with New Americans. They could be some new Canadians or, or individuals who are still in Afghanistan or somewhere. Um, but we're always trying to make sure we're using appropriate terminology and words that um, are not harmful, but that kind of imply agency and, and are words that people prefer to use themselves. So I really like that term. I do want to switch and talk a little bit because you are under Lutheran Services Carolina. And when I've talked about refugee resettlement or a lot of organizations that help new Americans, a lot of these organizations are religious. I don't know if it's religious in nature or just by name. So how is it associated with um, the Lutheran religion? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I want to make it very clear, because this is really important, that um, there is a big difference between Lutheran Services Carolinas as an organization and then the New Americans program that runs the federal programs. You know, there's a big distinction when it comes to religion, especially. So I just want to make sure that's very clear. So. Lutheran Services Carolinas, as an organization, does have some religious Lutheran affiliation from its inception, you know. So you don't have to be Lutheran to work for Lutheran Services Carolinas, but there is that association with the Lutheran faith as, you know, at the, as, at the beginning with Lutheran organization, Lutheran Services Carolinas organization. However, and you don't have to be religious at all to be hired. That's not, we don't discriminate based on any you know, any of that. But for the New Americans program in particular, I just want to make it really clear that since we run the federal programs, you know, our programs are not affiliated with religion in any way because they're federal, right? And religion doesn't impact our services in any way. and It doesn't influence us in any way how we serve the clients that we're supposed to serve, you know, so just letting you know, even though the umbrella organization has some Lutheran affiliation, that New Americans program, federal programs, has it has nothing to do with religion. Okay, good. Um, I know that I've encountered some individuals who get confused when they see all these organizations and are like, are they forcing their religion on these New Americans? And I try to confirm, like, no, um, I don't think that's what's happening. So it's it's nice to hear it from you. The, the federal program does not discriminate based on religion. You don't have to be Lutheran in nature to work for the organization or to receive aid from it. That being said, are a lot of your organizations that you work with or that provide volunteers, are they religious at all? I would say that a lot of the folks that have come out of the woodwork, especially in the last year, had a lot of community response, being willing to help our clients resettle to life in the U.S., whether through services, I mean, tons, tons and tons of hours of helping with all those core services, what we call 
you know, taking them to the doctor's appointments, helping them move, all that, as well as being their first American friends, you know. So we've had a lot of response in the last year. And to answer your question, a lot of the folks that have come to us saying they want to help have come from some sort of faith based community, not all Christian either. You know, it's it, a variety of denominations, Muslim, um, you know, a lot of different faith connections. And then as well, some that have no faith connections at all. You know, people that came because they, you know, were watching, well, basically everyone came because they were watching what's going on in the news, right? And felt a real burden to help. But we have seen a huge increase in help across the community in the last year. And a lot of those have been folks that come from some faith communities. Do you, you might not have any statistics, but just in general, have you seen an increase in people wanting to help? Do you find that you guys are continuously short on volunteers or are there usually lots of people who want to come in, who want to provide aid in some sort of way? So in over the last year, especially in the first several months after the fall of Kabul, there were a ton of people wanting to help. There were, like I said, even like maybe an entire big community like the mosque or, you know, the this church or this community organization, this club, you know, big organizations wanting to help as well as individuals. A lot of people approaching us wanting to help. I think that was a direct correlation with what was going on in the news. So it was at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I think a lot of people felt, you know, maybe even more connected because maybe some people had been, we've had veterans call and say like, I was a veteran and I want to help because I was also in Afghanistan. And I had, you know, an Afghan translator that helped me so much and I want to help these folks that are coming from Afghanistan. So I would say there was a lot of response based on the news with the Afghan crisis. Since that has kind of dwindled in the news, you know, and we're on to new crises, we really have encountered in the latter part of this year, definitely less, I'm not getting a lot of calls anymore, you know, interested. More so, I would say I'm getting more, I'm getting a steady interest of individual volunteers that want to help because we have individual ways, especially with tutoring and mentoring, helping in those ways. I feel like I've gotten a good amount of interest with that, with individuals. But as far as bigger groups or maybe, uh, like you were saying before, like a whole faith community or a whole, you know, uh, club in the in the community, I'm not getting as many of groups that have been interested in helping. When I call and ask if people are interested, people are just very like receptive and kind. But I think it's maybe not quite the bandwagon that everyone was jumping on earlier, you know. That makes a lot of sense that individuals' desire to help comes originally from what they see on the news. And if they see a lot on the news of, of these humanitarian crises, they might suddenly like that's at the forefront of their mind and they realize I really want to help with this. But if it's not right at the forefront of their mind and they're not seeing it on the nightly news, they might not be thinking about it and thinking of ways to help. But it is nice to hear at least that when there are humanitarian crises that people are trying to respond um, and they're not just watching the TV and then turning away, that they're trying to take some action. And so what I really want to know is just your thoughts in general about a kind of help and aid and and the response and volunteers that you get and how that all relates to living and working in the South. Because what we're trying to do this season is talk about the stereotypes that exist around the Southern United States and how, in general, the Southern United States can be seen as xenophobic as not wanting to take in refugees or asylees um, or have migrants of any kind coming in. 
or or not being kind of as helpful and, and responsive to individuals that do come in. But I'm sure that you interact with a lot of people who defy that stereotype. Um, so really, I just want to hear your thoughts kind of on all that and how that works being someone who works for a very helpful organization, but is located in a southern state. I have been personally so encouraged this past year to see, like I said before, just the outpouring of community support. And it was a very personally encouraging job position to be in, I would say, especially, you know, over the last few years where I feel like there's been a lot of maybe in the U.S. we we felt like more isolated, you know, because of the pandemic, right? We could like make so many friends and and maybe sometimes people might have felt a little more like a loner, you know, or something like that. And, you know, just the state of the world, just having a lot of hard stuff going on, right? And and then I, I think sometimes people can be doom and gloom about everything, you know, like everyone's mean now and everyone, you know, and everyone's angry all the time or, or you know, those kind of things that you hear or, or everyone's just on their phones all the time. And everyone's selfish anymore. And, you know, we're all isolated. Those kind of perceptions, I guess, of humanity in general and being in this position, especially during the Afghan crisis. I mean, there were so many people that wanted to help here in Colombia, like locally. And I felt it was such, it was a true, like, heart, I don't know, like, I can't think of the right way to describe it. Just like, I felt like a lot of other people in their jobs were were experiencing downers, you know, whether it's the economy or, you know, and or people being angry or people not wanting to work, you know, and, and here I was in this position of where there's so many people that wanted to help and were just being so generous and going the extra mile especially for people that they didn't know previously, you know, and they weren't scared of the cross-cultural challenges, right? They, they were nervous about the language barrier, but they were willing to jump in. They were willing to go above and beyond and help even financially when that wasn't a requirement. Like we don't, we're not requiring them to be financially involved if they're helping, you know, they give it their time. But a lot of times they wanted to give more. The amount of miles that they put on their car willing to drive these folks around, willing to really advocate as well in the community. Um, you know, if they felt like the refugee family or the humanitarian parolee family that they're working with wasn't being treated well or seen seen well, or, or maybe they saw something like they're really lonely or they don't have this, they were just willing to jump in and help. And and I truly felt like it restored my faith in <laughs> in humanity um, over this last year. And, and like I said before, you know, about the news, like I understand, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that now everyone doesn't care, not at all. There hasn't been quite, you know, I guess it's not on the forefront of everyone's mind. However, every time I call, I'm not getting grilled on. So going back to the stereotype that you're saying about South, I'm not getting grilled on, you know, who are these people and why are they here? Like, no matter who I talk to, whether they're religious or not, um, if I'm talking about this, this topic and the fact that there's folks coming in from other countries that don't have friends and don't have a lot of resources, you know, and they're trying to start life and provide for their families. The response I get is very positive. Even if they're not able to help in the same capacity, I'm not getting like shunted or, or any of that negative response, I guess. And, and I will say that I worked here before several years ago and it was different. There was less of a positive response to to the New Americans program from the community. Once again, it didn't matter religious or not, you know, like 
uh, there was less of a uh, less of a willingness to to be engaged and this past year we've seen a huge it doesn't mean like no one was willing but there was there was a little i feel like there was a little more of like that hesitancy you know several years ago and over the last year the amount of willingness and outpouring of support from the community has been astounding can you hypothesize about what has caused that change do you think it's more attention on the news and where, where individuals can see that this is a, a, a crisis. These individuals aren't coming over because, quote, they want to steal our jobs or, or X, Y, Z. Do you think it's anything about that or just a change after COVID happened that we're all trying to reach out more and, and be kinder to each other? Um, any guesses you can provide? I feel like I have a lot of guesses, but I'm not like it, it's all it's all like, I don't know, you know. I mean, like I said earlier, with it being on the news so much, I think that helped a lot because it wasn't like coming out of the blue. It wasn't like, what? You know, there's there's refugees here. What's that about? It was like, oh, of course, I hope they're coming. You know, kind of a, probably seeing the images of people trying to get on the planes and stuff like that. It may, I, I like to think that it may be a, a positive post-COVID response, you know, where people were like, it's been a couple of years since we've really been able to connect with someone new, you know, or really help someone new. You probably were mostly just communicating with the people you already knew, right? You know, because of the nature of the pandemic. And so maybe there was more of a, a willingness to jump in and use your resources in that way. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think the fact that, you know, we had some, like I said before, some veterans that really, they felt personally connected to folks that they worked in Afghanistan. And so like they could picture, like, I remember how much this translator helped me when I was in an unfamiliar country and I want to give back. So perhaps that feeling of putting yourself in their shoes a little more easily maybe might have also helped with that outpouring of support, but we're grateful. <laughs> yeah, no matter what happened, it's a good thing. That is so interesting to think about um, of a whole population, the veteran population that kind of has gone through sort of a similar situation of being in an unfamiliar country where you might have a small community of people who speak your same language who are there serving with you. But in general, you're trying to navigate a place where you might not know the language. You don't know a lot of cultural customs. You don't have any relationships outside of just those couple of people. And so having a population in the United States that's kind of experienced something like that hopefully helps individuals realize that I want to help these new people who are coming in now who are going through the same thing that I've gone through different, but but generally having some of the same experiences. So that's cool to hear, especially we're recording this on Veterans Day. Um, so thinking about that, which is really nice, uh, you have a population willing to give back in that way. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, you know, as we're hypothesizing <laughs> I feel like, I mean, it's very possible, you know, that it could also be that there was, you know, we're here close to Fort Jackson, you know, like there's a lot of veterans here, right? Here mm -hmm. in this community of Columbia. And it could have been that there were a lot more advocates as well. Like I said, there was so much support. No one was, no one was fighting. No one was being forced at all, like by their friends. But maybe there was a lot, lot more connection with a veteran who was like, oh my gosh, like I remember being there and I wonder if my translator is okay. And then, and everyone's watching the same thing. And then maybe if they had a personal connection with a veteran who mentioned that as well, it could have, plus that post COVID need to help. I don't know. A really um, wonderful, obviously the 
the crisis in Afghanistan was terrible, but a wonderful response, like, you know, a wonderful willingness to give back and help. Yeah. And, and listeners at home can't see the like big smile I had on my face when you were describing the outpouring of support and, and the number of individuals who really wanted to come help because it's something that I've noticed in my community, like living here in Columbia, that there are so many people, especially students who want to help. There are lots of student organizations yeah. that are, are focused on this. And so it's always hard when I hear people outside who have these stereotypes and these ideas about the South. Um, and so it's nice to kind of be like, not all the time. Uh, we do have lots yeah. of people who, who really want to help and do these things. I also just wanted to ask a question about diversity because somehow I don't really know how the South gets a reputation of being very undiverse, but you are probably intimately familiar with the number of populations and the number of people we have coming in who are not from the Southern United States. And so could you speak a little bit about um, generally what countries more new Americans are coming from currently or recently kind of that influx in, in the diversity here in Colombia? Yeah, I feel like Colombia in particular has a, for a small city, we've got a lot of populations from other parts of the around the world, but a lot of people don't realize that. And so, as you might already know, we've got that huge international festival every year, you know, but a lot of people don't even know that. So, but yes, for our population, I mean, we've been resettling clients here, you know, through the New Americans program since the 90s. So long history of uh, folks coming from around the world and being resettled in Colombia from the older times, several years ago, and even into like 20 years ago, a lot of folks from Burma, a lot of Congolese. Several years ago, I would say, you know, that was more during the Syrian crisis. I mean, it's still ongoing, of course. So, so Syrians, folks from Iraq, various places in the Middle East. Also, like I said, last year, uh, a ton of folks from Afghanistan. And we've got folks from South America, Central American countries, and then, you know, those parts of, like I mentioned before, Burma and various countries in Africa, Eritrea, you know, so there's a wide range of, and obviously whatever population is coming more frequently at the time probably is related to what's going on in that part of the world at the time, you know, Um, but some crises are ongoing. So there's some parts of the world that we just, you know, for many years, we'll keep getting folks from there. But, and then of course, we're getting Ukrainians as well through the Uniting for Ukraine program. They're coming through private sponsors. So like, you know, family members or or friends or even groups that have decided to sponsor them. And then they come in and get services from us as well. So we're seeing Ukrainians as well. What determines what individuals get to come to Colombia versus elsewhere in the United States? Is there anything specific or is it kind of just luck of the draw or do individuals come here if they already have family members who have been resettled here? What determines when individuals are resettled in, in Colombia? So it is a variety of factors and can be a combination as well. And once again, I'm sure I don't have all the reasons because I am not the boss here. So all the details in my head about why, but I know that we will get folks here, like if they have what, what is called a U.S. tie. So maybe there is a family member or even friends, uh, you know, that is willing to say like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be their first call here in, in Columbia or and the U.S. tie doesn't, that doesn't mean that they're going to provide all the services or anything like that. They're still coming through the federal program and getting it through us. But if they have a U.S. tie, that person will probably help out in some capacity or, you know, at least be their first friend, right? So they could be resettled because of that. That's a big reason. 
However, a lot of the people we get don't have U.S. ties. So Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, that is, or LIRS, that's one of the BOLAGs, one of the national, you know, partners, our national affiliate. And so they would be sent the amounts of people that they're going to disperse around the country where they have their affiliate offices, right? And so they would look at, from my understanding, they'll look at um, factors like, you know, how big is the city? So for example, Columbia, like what kind of jobs are there? Like, could could this place support this amount of people? Or, or maybe is there already a sizable population of XYZ, you know, and maybe maybe this this would be a good fit. You know, there are there's already a population there. Or maybe this other part, you know, maybe in Virginia, maybe they are, they're already at capacity. And so Columbia's not at capacity yet. And so we're gonna send them there. So kind of I think those connected, you know, all together are kind of reasons why they get sent. But yeah, we don't get to choose who comes. We don't we wouldn't want to do that. We're like I said before, we do not discriminate. We have no we have no control over who gets to come, but we will they will just like send us the the assurance that well they'll ask us if we can assure the case and basically the director and resettlement director they'll they'll just make sure like do we have capacity for this and then they'll say yes so that's kind of how it works okay so i just have a couple of more questions that i want to um, look at specifically about volunteers and and the services that they provide um, and looking a little bit more into what you specifically do in your role but what are some of the, the greatest needs that you see with these new Americans and how do volunteers kind of fill that role? So obviously when they come here, they have every need basically, right? And so the federal programs that we run, you know, are slated to meet those needs of, you know, the house training, the per capita funding, getting them their jobs, with employment specialists that connect them with that, like training them on the bus, like all those things. So the greatest need for us as an organization with, when it comes to volunteers is to have folks come alongside our team, join with us in helping bring these services to the clients. Because especially over the last year, you know, when we had so many folks coming in at once, there was just a need for a lot of extra hands, you know, in order to just make sure they're getting individualized attention and help that we want them to have. And also getting resources, you know, so that they're not having to spend down their per capita funding um, by purchasing a couch, you know, if someone can donate a used couch that helps them, you know, and those kind of things. Also with moves, you know, our case managers, there's only a certain amount of them, you know, <laughs> so we had so many people moving into homes, those circle of welcome teams taking the entire move and just moving that family was, was enormous, enormous help. So the the need of the clients is to be per federal guidelines would say the biggest need is self-sufficiency, right? And all of our programs are geared towards self-sufficiency and helping the clients achieve that. And it, I think a lot of times we think of that as money, money, but it's not only money, right? I mean, if you can't speak English, you're not going to be self-sufficient to be able to call 911 or um, ask for a doctor's note from your teacher, you know, your kid's teacher, or if you get lost, how are you going to tell someone about your address? So, how will you learn how to use the calendar to track your medical appointments and get through our system? So there's a whole lot of layers to self-sufficiency. So their need being self-sufficiency, and there's a lot of challenges to that. The volunteers coming alongside, encouraging them, helping them, just being that extra layer of that friend, you know, where our case managers work like crazy to help our clients. But obviously we don't show favoritism, you know, depending on, anything, right? There's no favoritism at all. 
and um, there's a whole lot of cases to work on, you know. And so um, the the volunteers have that extra layer, not only in being able to help them with these services that are federally mandated, but also being able to be their friend and connect with them as you know people that study cross cultural living. And I can attest myself; I lived overseas for a while as well. The greatest need is is after being self-sufficient, being okay, you know, living and <laughs> is, is really to have community in that new culture, right? And it's important that you have community from home. So it's important that they're connected to folks of their culture um, here. But if they're only connected to folks of their culture here and they never make friends from Colombia, that's going to inhibit in the end self-sufficiency and also just a quality of life, you know, and that that integration piece where they feel like this is my new home. And so that that part of the volunteers and the circle welcome teams coming alongside and just becoming a friend in, in s- such a different way than even a case manager can be, right? And that is such a great need. So I would say that um, that relational piece is huge. And then, of course, the service piece, helping with those all of those necessary required services, especially in that first 90 days, is very crucial as well. So there's so many ways that volunteers and circle welcome teams help have helped, especially over the last um, year. We just couldn't have done couldn't have done it without them. They were amazing. Yeah, and and could you explain a little bit more specifically about what a circle of welcome team is and what they do? So, circle welcome team is a group of six to ten people that have um, decided that they want to form a team for the purpose of being matched with a refugee family or humanitarian parolee or asylum family. But mainly it's the ones who are incoming are usually refugees or humanitarian police. So they're willing to form this team and to commit for six months that they're going to walk alongside um, the matched refugee family in service and relationship. And this is all guided by LSD. So I just want to put in this as well, because I know we talked earlier about some of our outpouring of support and people that want to help being from some faith-based communities. I just want to let everyone know that, you know, they're, they are trained that they're not to use this for proselytizing purposes. You know, they're not allowed to proselytize. Their motivation may be from a faith-based, you know, their motivation to help may be connected to faith-based, but as far as what they actually do in practicality is befriending this family in a non-religious way at all, and also helping with the required, the core services directed by LSD through the federal guidelines. So not religious in nature at all and not discriminatory you know we we're going to try to match all of as many as people as we can with the circle welcome so this team they we onboard we train them and then we background check them and yeah there's a series of onboarding they go through and then we match them with a refugee family and then if, if the family hasn't come yet if we know like the family's coming and they we say like there's a family that's coming you know are you willing to be matched and they say yes then we start out dividing the tasks, you know, so we're like, can you be there at the airport with enough cars? Can you pick up the culturally appropriate meal? Can you buy the first thing of groceries? And then we have a, a match meeting between the family and the circle welcome leaders where we go through a community sponsor agreement. That's very, it's set forth by Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, our national affiliate that talks about all the core services that they're going to help with and also the support services so like employment, ESL helping them get to the DMV to get their license, those kind of things. And then after that, I get a referral form every week from the case manager detailing what the needs are for that week. 
you know, we would like you to assist. Let us know yes or no if you can take in this appointment, by, you know, those kind of things. And so they do that for a six-month period. So that a circle welcome team is a lot bigger commitment, um, but it's also great in the reward of the relational side because they really get to know each other really well. I can easily understand how that would be so beneficial. I've done individual volunteering before, and usually it's involved me driving a client somewhere, and you don't really get to have any kind of relationship with them because you see them once, and then you're helping someone else with something different, but having a six-month commitment. I'm also sure it helps you all with turnover, with getting people who are like, I'm going to commit for six months and help instead of, I can commit, and then two months later, they're like, I can't anymore. Um, and having a team in general, if someone's slacking off, you have other people to kind of come in to make sure that those new Americans are getting the support that they need and deserve. So that's super cool. Um, I, I'm glad that you guys do that. I have two more questions and that's it. Um, and the second to last one is um, kind of how did you get into this role? I know you said that you were abroad and that you've been here before. So what was kind of your inspiration for doing this? So since I was a young kid and especially preteen, I just loved anything to do with history and culture. So I just loved learning about other parts of the world and always loved Asia. That was like, for some reason, I just always really loved, was fascinated by China and Asia, you know, those parts of the world. So um, I lived in China for five years and I taught university students. I lived on a university campus and it was one of the most incredible, you know, rewarding, life-changing experience of my life and still very close to a lot of those students, you know, many years later. But um, when I came back to the U.S., I really wanted to be either teaching, teaching English as a second language or English as speakers of other languages, which I had done in China, or somehow involved with international, uh, welcoming internationals here. And like we mentioned earlier, how the veterans, you know, were specifically connected when they, you know, for the folks coming from Afghanistan, um, I feel that way, just not, not in the time of war, of course, but just personally, I can attest to I wouldn't have made it without my Chinese friends, you know, and my students that taught me Chinese and, you know, taught me the bus system and helped me. I mean, what would I have done, you know? And, um, and in that kind of a scary time, right, when you're transitioning into a new culture and those friends really become deep, deep friends, right? And so I, for, um, when I moved to Columbia about seven years ago, I was really excited to find a job of being here. Lutheran services in the New Americans program. I did, um, I was one of the employment specialists. So I helped the refugees find jobs. Um, and so, and that was really rewarding, but then there was an opportunity to teach ESL. So I went back and taught ESL for several years. And then when I heard about this opportunity for um, being an outreach coordinator and onboarding and training and managing volunteers and circles welcome, I was really excited because I felt like that would be so amazing to able to meet all these folks that wanted to help and wanted to help welcome uh, these folks coming in from around the world and helping just really being that link between the services that need to be done, the case managers that need help, the client that needs help, and the team or the individual volunteers that want to help. Um, so that's how I came came here. Cool. Um, for our listeners, if anyone who isn't already helping has been inspired to want to help or want to to join as a volunteer with your organization, how do they go about doing that? So actually a lot of, we've had a really uh, good response from the Gamecocks for Refugees Club, I believe. And um, I've had a lot of those students come either email me or call me 
and join the trainings and sending their paperwork. And we're starting to get them matched with um, families where they can tutor or mentor. So for the individual volunteering track, as you can imagine, depending on what's going on, <laughs> our, our needs might differ. So at the beginning of this year, when we had so many people coming in, uh, we just needed people that could drive people to appointments. We needed so much transport help. But right now, that's not the need. The need is mentors for the uh, adults that that are needing help with addressing those vulnerabilities to self-sufficiency. So like with English or learning how to use a calendar, tracking appointments, those kind of things. So the mentorship program does that or um, tutors for the, the school impact program. So as you can imagine, we've got a lot of kids in the school system here in Columbia that are new, you know, pretty new to school in the U.S. and so definitely could use some help from tutors. So the tutoring mentoring track, call me or email me and I can you know, give you that information to let me know if you're interested and I'd be happy to send the materials and get you connected to a training. But if you're interested in forming a circle welcome and that doesn't have to be through a specific club or a group or, you know, a specific faith community or anything like that, it can be a group of friends. We've had that before, you know, that just, just decide to form the team. Uh, let me know and I will guide you through the steps and onboard you and then get you matched with the family. That's so cool. Hopefully um, you get more individuals. And yeah, GARC is what we call it, Gamecocks Aiding Refugees in Columbia. And I know that they're a large club that so many people know about and want to help with. So I'm glad that there's kind of a partnership between both of those organizations. And I always like to end my interviews by just asking, is there anything else that I haven't asked or that you want to say to any of our listeners about literally anything that you want to talk about? I think I would just say that it's so rewarding to, you know, if someone's listening and has not yet, maybe feels a little nervous to take that step to befriend a refugee family or to come alongside as a tutor or mentor or to step into a circle welcome or start a circle welcome. It might seem really daunting because there's a lot of challenges, right, with the language. But I just want to say, like, it's so rewarding. The feedback we have gotten, you know, from our circle welcome teams and from uh, individual volunteers is just that it has been one of the most rewarding experiences in their life because they're being able to give back to someone who really needs it. And like I said, it's really not focused on money. You know, you're not shelling out money. (laughs) You're giving up your time and your relational capital. And sometimes that can be harder. You know, sometimes it's easier to write a check or something. But giving up your time and just really befriending and welcoming someone into Columbia and, you know, down the road, I've met old clients that, you know, now they're doing okay. Or even, you know, after six months, like you see such a big change when they're working and their kids are in school. And it's just wonderful to know that you've been a part of that, um, that you've been an integral part of helping someone to settle into a new life somewhere else and, and made them feel safe and welcome and really help them towards self-sufficiency. And so I would just encourage you, like I said before, it doesn't matter your background, you know, obviously, you know, you have to be pass our background checks, religious, non-religious, whatever um, ethnicity you're from, whatever political beliefs you have, like, it doesn't matter. We don't discriminate on based on any of that. Please come and as long as you're willing to help our folks and, and follow the federal guidelines, we would love to have you join. I am going to start tutoring, I think, next semester, which I'm really excited to be matched awesome. with the family. Um, and hopefully get a new friend and or a couple of new yes. friends too, which is 
really exciting. And to all of our listeners, definitely find some way to volunteer. If you're not in Columbia, there are other organizations. If you're in the Carolinas, Lutheran Services Carolinas has definitely other offices. There's so many ways to help. So I know I think I speak for Sarah and myself, but I say, please try to help in some kind of way. But thank you so very much for coming. Um, I've so enjoyed this conversation and listening to you talk and getting to know more about um, your organization and, and what you guys do, especially in kind of my backyard in, in Columbia. So uh, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jackie. That was Sarah Lewis from Lutheran Services Carolinas talking to us about the work her organization does to help new Americans in Columbia, South Carolina. In case it wasn't already clear, Sarah and I want to make sure everyone is aware that Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services and Lutheran Services Carolinas does not discriminate based on religion or any other factor concerning who they help, who can volunteer, or who is employed with the organization. We encourage anyone of any background to reach out to volunteer if they have the time. Sarah Lewis's contact information can be found in the show notes and on social media. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your host for this week was me, Jackie Burnett. This episode was edited by Victoria Halsey and produced by Diana Clark. Our executive producers are Jackie Burnett and Isha Hegde. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.